Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. One old familiar Christmas classic asked the questions, do you hear what I hear? Do you see what I see? And do you know what I know? And it always amazes me as I read the gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry that there were those who personally saw and experienced witnessing the wonderful, awe-inspiring miracles he performed, but still were not convinced of his identity. They said all the things of Christ, but still were not convinced that Jesus was Messiah. Even today, People use the name of Jesus every day, usually in blasphemy. They use his incarnation as the focal point of our calendars before Christ and after Christ and promote his moral teachings in their pursuit of social justice. We love his teachings, but then they deny, dismiss, and denigrate his identity and purpose as Messiah. It just is befuddling. Last week, we encouraged each other during this Christmas season to ask our family and friends of who they think or believe Jesus is. And again, I want to give that to you this Christmas season. If you celebrate this Christmas season, I think it's a great time to ask people, who do you think Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus is? This is the most important question anyone can ask as our eternal destiny rests on that answer. Last week we learned that Jesus demonstrated that he was greater than Satan through the restoring of speech to a man who was possessed by a demon. And he taught that he is the one who is who is breaking into the strong man's house and rescues those that were enslaved and we saw that you and I were once enslaved by Satan but by God's grace and mercy he came and broke into the house of Satan and rescued us from his enslavement. This week, as we continue on in Luke chapter 11, Jesus continues to address the crowd and pronounces that he is greater than the two Jewish heroes and that any and all who reject him will one day face judgment with two Old Testament uh, figures joining in the condemnation. So with that, Luke chapter 11, verse 14 through 16, let's read there silently with me as I read. Luke writes, when the crowds were increasing... He began to say, Jesus, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for its preservation. And for, Father, may we receive it with gladness and joy this morning. Ready to read, to listen to hear 
And Father, then to learn and respond to the Holy Spirit's work. And may it do its work this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Luke begins his narrative by pointing out that the crowds were increasing. What's important to understand is that this crowd consisted of those who were true disciples and followers of Christ. But it also had skeptics looking for more signs and wonders. There was also curious villagers who were wondering what were going on or those who were seeking to be healed. There were religious leaders who were looking to test and trip Jesus up to derail his message and his ministry. And then there was those entertainment hounds that were just seeking to see something surprising and new. As we move through the gospel, Jesus typically confronts one of these groups as he travels to the various towns and villages preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And this is a good time to note that just because someone or some church is drawing a big crowd, a large crowd, doesn't mean that they are faithful or that God or that they are of God. It doesn't mean that all those who are attending a church are themselves truly disciples of Christ. Unfortunately, churches and preachers have forgotten that uh, that truth and they find themselves serving as entertainers and purveyors of new doctrine and theology in order to draw a larger crowd. But you and I need to heed the warning that's found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. It's here on the monitor. It says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves to, uh, teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to truth and wander off in the midst. And unfortunately, today, that is... So true, as each generation seems to grow deeper and deeper. And so just because the crowds are increasing, we shouldn't expect that everyone in the crowd is a true follower of Christ, or in some sense, that who they're following is someone of God. Now, Christ obviously is, but the crowds are increasing. But Jesus knows the hearts of that crowd. And he knows the hearts of those that are following him and he spares no expense. He spares no feelings. He spares spares no words in confronting their misguided notions or the errors of their theology. Going back to our passage, we see that the crowd is increasing from those that came in verse 14. It seems that the casting out of the demon and the uh, subsequent confrontation with those who accused him of being an agent of Satan has drawn more people. Now that he is done confronting those accusations of him being an agent of Satan, he turns to those that were described back in verse 16 as those who were bent on testing Jesus and kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. This group wanted something more, something more significant than just a simple exorcism. They wanted Jesus to do something spectacular. They were looking for something in the vein of Moses and Elijah and Elisha. Hey, turn water into blood. Call down fire from heaven or or make an axe head float in water. They, They wanted something spectacular, something to tickle their fancy. Prove to us who you truly are. In his response to the request for more signs and wonders, Jesus in this passage points to them four facts. So let's go there. 
First, instead of performing more miracles to satisfy their curiosity and to pass their test, Jesus instead accuses them of being evil. Do you see that? They have dismissed Jesus' healing of the mute man and his power over demons. That's not enough. They, They demand more. And you may recall from last week that the Apostle Paul wrote that the Jews demand a sign and they had grown up reading, reciting, and remembering all of the wonderful uh, events and miracles and deeds that Yahweh had performed through the various prophets throughout Israel's history. And they want Jesus to prove his identity and authority in the same way as Moses had to and Elijah and Elisha and so on and so forth. However, instead of catering to the crowd, Jesus condemns them. Jesus calls them evil because they're like their ancestors in the wilderness, stubborn and rebellious. Thomas Schreiner writes that this generation is evil because it demands a sign requiring what it will regard as a definite proof of Jesus' claim. You may want to underline that phrase, this generation, as Jesus is speaking to them. Now, this is something for us to keep in mind. How many times have you and I demanded that God make himself known to us or that he answer our prayers as we see fit? How many times have we doubted God's word or his goodness, his character and his love for us? Go back, if you would, to Luke chapter four. What you and I have to understand, what Jesus is teaching here is that to seek a sign from God was actually satanic. They are doing the work of Satan. By demanding a sign, they were adopting the practices and schemes of Satan. Look at verse 9 of Luke chapter 4. This is Jesus' testing in the wilderness. It says, and he, in verse 9, Satan took Jesus up to Jerusalem. And he set him up on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest place in all of Jerusalem. And he said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. This is a test. If you're the son of God, prove it. Throw yourself off of the pinnacle. Do a skydive. Do do a high dive off of there. Why? For it is written, (coughs) he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on your hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. In other words, Satan says, listen, God says that he'll protect you. He'll he'll guard you. So you should be able to jump off that that high pinnacle and you can do a swan dive down, do a beautiful twist and turn, get a 10. And at the last minute, God will protect you. Prove that you are the son of God. God will protect you and save you. Jesus answered him and said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So in the same way, we see these men, these skeptics putting Jesus to the test. In the same way, many times you and I do the same thing. Prove to me that you are God. Heal this way. If God doesn't do it this way, there's no way I can believe in a God that does this or does that. We ourselves are tackling on the same type of schemes of Satan, approve your God to me. This is exactly what the Hebrew children did constantly in the wilderness. 
And now this generation is doing the same thing to Christ. Prove to us that you truly are Messiah. Now you have to remember, Jesus had just proven his divine authority by casting out a demon and restoring the man's speech. But again, that's not enough. Not only that, that we learned that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, we looked at this last year, he had also been censured and, 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 and uh, cursed because he did not believe God in Luke chapter 1, verse 18, for demanding a sign. Is that up there on the screen? It's not up there? It says, and Zechariah said to the angel, remember the angel said, you will, give, you will have a child. And remember, they were of old age. Physically, it was impossible. And Zechariah said to the angel in Luke chapter 1, verse 18, if you want to turn back to you may. He said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not Believe my words, which will be fulfilled in your time. The test of demand that Jesus prove who he is, is to be condemned. Let it never be said of us that we demand more than what God has graciously given to us. Or that we doubt his word and promises for what he has promised in scripture shall be. So secondly... The second fact as we continue on is Jesus tells them there is no other sign that's going to be given to you than that which was the sign of Jonah. You can almost imagine the countenance of the crowd faltering and turning to anger and maybe even confusion as Jesus describes them as evil and pronounces that no extraordinary sign will be given to them. Wait, wait, wait a second. I thought the customer is always right. You, you should do for us. Perform another miracle. Perform another trick. But instead, Jesus says, no, you're evil. And you're not going to get anything else except the sign of Jonah. I can, I can imagine the anger, maybe the frustration, but then also the confusion. It might have clouded their mind as Jesus says in verse 30 of chapter 11. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. What in the world is Jesus talking about? They might have exclaimed. They might have even thought, Jesus, do you even know who Jonah was and who he was sent to? He was sent to that wicked nation of Nineveh. We are children of Abraham. We are his chosen people, the apple of his eye. How in the world would you compare us even to them? Some might have even wondered, is Jesus going to go to the Lake of Galilee or Mediterranean and be spit out by a fish? What kind of sign is Jesus talking about here? Most of you are familiar with the story of Jonah being swallowed up by a great fish. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. It's in your Old Testament. One of the minor prophets, you remember the story, God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. Jonah says, nope. He says, I'm going the opposite way. He gets on a, he gets on a boat. He heads off to, to Tarshish, to, to Spain uh, at that time. But about, he's getting there, a big storm comes. 
The ship people, the, the sailors, they're so scared because the storm is so immense and enormous. They don't know what to do. They're throwing things out the boat and they just still don't know where they're praying to their gods. And finally, Jonah says, stop. This is my God. He's doing this. You just need to throw me overboard. What? Yeah, just throw me overboard and God will calm the seas. First, they didn't want to do it, but it was getting so bad. They finally had no choice. They grabbed him. They threw him into the ocean. Jonah then is swallowed up by a whale for three days and three nights. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, we read this. And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You might recall in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah finally comes to his senses. By the way, just having a diet of seafood will probably do that to you. She says, you know what? I've sinned against God. He repents and begs for deliverance and God rescues him by having the spit. Now, can you imagine what Jonah probably looked at, looked like after three days in the belly of a fish? I'm sure just his, just his countenance, his physical was, was probably alarming. But then in verse one of chapter four, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Jonah was an exceeding great city, three days journey in breath. Do I have you in the right chapter? Are you guys with me? Jonah chapter two? Yeah. Now we're in chapter three. Jonah, well, I just realized that I told you chapter three was where he gives the his, his confessions, chapter 2. So that's, that's throwing me off. I'm thinking of three different things as I'm preaching here. Look at verse 4, chapter 3. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. So what's the sign of Jonah? One theologian notes that there's three of them. One, Jonah is rescued from the fish. Number two, it's the preaching of judgment. And number three, it's the repentance of the Ninevites. It's the rescue from the fish, the preaching of judgment, and the repentance of the Ninevites. These are the signs of Jonah. And what we're seeing here is the work of Jesus in their midst should have brought them to repentance. Seeing his, his power demonstrated, listening to his teaching should have brought them to repentance. However... All it did was hardened their hearts. You see, true, genuine faith is demonstrated by repentance. Not a worldly sorrow, but a godly sorrow. Without repentance, you need to mark this, without repentance, no one will see God. Though Luke does not go into the detail that Matthew does in his gospel concerning how the Son of Man would be like Jonah, Jesus here is foretelling his upcoming crucifixion death and resurrection in Matthew chapter 12 verse 40 Jesus in answering these in Matthew's account says for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth there will be no other signs but my crucifixion Now, obviously they did not understand this at this time 
the final proof of his identity as the Messiah will be his death and his resurrection. This is why Paul pronounces in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for Jews demand a sign, but the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and it is foolishness or folly to the Gentiles. They just can't understand it. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul goes on to write, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. It wasn't with great rhetoric that I came to you. It was not by performing tricks and entertaining you. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Boy, if we could just get that. So many times we think that we need to know all of the world philosophy. We need to know psychology. We need to know this and that. But here Paul says, I know nothing but that Christ is crucified. That is the sign that Jesus is God. And twice more in Galatians 3.1 and 6.14, you see these two verses. Paul writes, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. Not that they were eyewitnesses to that, but that Paul had preached that. I publicly betrayed to you that Jesus died and he was raised on the third day. Look at the next verse, 614. But far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When Jesus says there's no other sign but that of Jonah, he's speaking of his future death and resurrection. We do not need or require, get this, and I think this is important. You and I do not need or require more signs and wonders that Jesus is the Son of God, the Redeemer of God's children. We should not be looking for it. We should not be expecting it. We should not be asking for it. As Peter writes in 2 Peter, he says, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as a light lamp shining in a dark place. What is that prophetic word? It's the word of God. It's the word of Christ. It is the gospels. It is the the epistles, the letters that Paul, Peter has, Paul and Peter have written in the rest. This is the word that is fully confirmed. There is no other sign that you and I should be looking for or expecting or acquiring. And that's a sad event is that there are many church and pastors and people who have been caught up in giving us different signs and wonders and is denigrated into such awful things as grave sucking and all sorts of weird and strange types of things. Grave sucking is where you go to a great saint, maybe someone, uh, maybe a grandmother who has a great prayer, and, and you go and you lay on that grave, hoping to get some of their spirituality in you. This is being practiced by the church of God today. A very influential church today practices that. They want to see signs and wonders and healings. They want to see legs straightened. They want to see lame people walk again. They want to raise people from the dead. That's what we need. If if that's not happening, then God is not at work. But that God says don't require another sign. There's no other sign that's going to be given to prove who I am. 
See, it's the writing of scripture that gives us the proof. God in his wisdom has given to us through his written word a special revelation that is clear that you and I can understand. It is necessary, meaning that it's needful for salvation. It is sufficient in that it tells us all that we need to live lives of godliness and holiness. It is inerrant in that it is true in all that it entails. You and I have something much greater than signs and wonders. We have the word of God that publicly portrays the sign of Jonah, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we see because of their unbelief and because of their desire for more signs, Jesus informs them that one day they will be judged and condemned by two outsiders. Now this is even, this has got to really just really get at him now because now he says, now, not only is what you're doing is evil, not only am I not going to give you another sign, but one day you're going to stand before Yahweh and you're going to be judged not by children of Abraham, but by two Gentiles, two outsiders. Look at verse 31 and verse 32 of Luke chapter 11. Once again, the queen of south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And then in verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they turned or repented at the preaching of of Jonah. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings. We're going to look at a few different scriptures today. 1 Kings chapter 10. The queen of the south was Queen Sheba who traveled to Jerusalem to visit King Solomon. And we just want to read this as just short, short 10 verses. It's good for us to understand it. I think most of you probably know the story of Queen Sheba and Solomon, but if not, just good to maybe remind you of it. First Kings chapter 10. Look at verse 1. But when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, uh, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. It 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 was important at that time is when someone came and visited, they brought gifts. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. She's wanting to test, is he as wise? Is his kingdom as glorious as everything that I have heard? Verse 3, we see that Solomon answered all of her questions. And there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. Verse 4. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all of the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table and the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, their cupbearers and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, that there was no more breath in her. Her breath was taken away by all she experienced, by all she had heard. Verse six, and she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. Verse 7, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. 
Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. But then in verse 9, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Look at what goes on here with Queen Sheba, the queen of the south. She goes from curious skeptics. Hey, I've heard all these things. Can these things be true? She then goes to astonishment as she sees that it's not only what she's heard, but it's more than that to a believer of what she heard to worship. Do you see that? Skeptic, astonished believer, worship. Unlike those in attendance, as Jesus cast out the demons, Sheba is moved by what she witnesses and she gives glory to Yahweh, to God. Now we have already read part of Jonah's story, but let's go back to Jonah chapter four, verse seven. You can go back there if, you have to, if you're able to do that. There we read that the king of Nineveh, after hearing Jonah's message, responded in chapter four, verse seven of Jonah. After he's setting in ash cloth or sackcloth and ashes, it says that the king issued a proclamation and he published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree, this is the decree, by the decree of king of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. For who knows? God may turn and relent and turn his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they had turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. The men of Nineveh go for wicked, evil, murderous intent to repentance, prayer, and then delivered from the wrath of God. Both Queen Sheba and the men of Nineveh are Gentiles. They are considered to be uh, outsiders to the promises of Abraham. Yet, yet, they will stand in the day of judgment and join in the chorus of those declaring to this generation, you are guilty. Judgment is the dispensing of righteous justice. It's the concept of determining the correctness of the matter and is a future time of recompense for those that have rejected Christ. Turn and once again, to your Bibles in Revelation chapter 20. And here we see that the final judgment is found in these chapters. Why is it that we must ask, even during this Christmas time, who is Jesus? Why does the answer to that question, why is it so important? Why is it that we should be compelled to pursue and, and, and to, to love our neighbors and our family with sharing with them the gospel? It's because what's found here in Revelation chapter 20, the last, uh, the last uh, few chapters of the book, look at verse 11 of Revelation 20. 
verse 11, John sees this vision. He says, then I saw a great right throne and whom him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and the sky fled away and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is a judgment day that is coming. And you and I as Christians recognize this, should know this, understand it. And be in the business of asking, who is Jesus? Let us tell you, for we have heard we have been astonished, we have believed, and we have worship. We want to bring them into the same fold as you and I. Fourthly, Jesus lays down the gauntlet when he answers the question of his identity. As he declares, I'm greater than both Jonah and Solomon. What a big statement. In last week's passage, he pronounced that he was greater than Satan. In today's, he attests that he's greater than two Jewish heroes of the past. You think Solomon was something? I'm greater than Solomon. You think Jonah was something? I'm greater than Jonah. Unfortunately, they were too blinded by their hatred, their jealousy, their curiosity, and their negligence that they could not see that the Messiah was before them. Amazed at his miracles, they were astonished at his teaching. They were awestruck by his power, but yet they still denied and dismissed his message and ministry. They just put it aside. How like so many throughout history have done the same. Oh, they are more than willing to proclaim that Jesus is a good man. He is a great moral teacher. He is a great influencer of history. But he is not God. He is not the Savior. How mistaken is the world? For God has given them all that they need to declare that Jesus is God. In summary, Luke records the ongoing response of the audience that is following Jesus as he travels to Jerusalem. And he shows us the greatness of this preacher. He is greater than Satan. He is greater than Solomon. He is greater than Jonah. For you and I today, there are several things for you and I to consider about this passage. For us to, to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to respond correctly. And this is what you and I should understand is that you and I should not expect or require signs and wonders to confirm the identity, the authority, and message of Christ in our own minds, and especially in our evangelism. You and I have a simple message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ has been crucified, and he has come to redeem sinners, of which you and I are the chiefest. That's the simple 
We don't need other evidences. We don't need other other philosophies. We don't need the, the wisdom of the world. We just need Christ crucified. That's the sign that Jesus has given to us. Pastor John MacArthur notes that Jesus did not use evidence to appeal to unbelievers. I think that's a mistake many times. Is we want to use all sorts of science and other things. And many times, that, they, they may listen to that, but that's not going to appeal. That's not the special revelation that God's given to open up the heart. The scriptures contain all things needed to bring the sinner to salvation. And all that God requires of his children. In Romans chapter 10, Paul writes, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We ought to believe that. Do you believe that? That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he says, But how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone showing signs and wonders, right? Or giving wisdom or giving evidence? No. Without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of them who preach the good news so what is it that you have to offer to the world to introduce them to christ you have the scriptures jesus betrayed as crucified the atonement of christ is all that we have Demand for a sign, listen to this, a demand for a sign or for a wonder from God demonstrates rejection of Christ that brings judgment. One day we will stand before God to give account to our response to the claims of Jesus. This generation is speaking, as we're looking at Luke, is speaking of that generation there with Jesus. But this generation speaks to all who demand a sign. All who, do, who, who deny who Jesus is. This generation covers anyone and everyone who denies, dismisses, or disparges the man, the message, and the ministry of Christ. Written to a particular group 2,000 years ago, we find that it comes through history to you and I today. I pray that none of you here are this generation. But you are children of God. Let me share with you, if you are part of this generation, then please see that God is good and come to him as we see Jesus Christ crucified. As King Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 14, I believe it should be here on the monitor. He says, the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There's a way that seems right to, the, to a man, but the end thereof is death, is the way of death. Worship is demanded of all of humanity to the creator of the universe, for he alone is worthy. He created us that we may look upon him, as the gospel primer says, as the object of our admiration. You may do that voluntarily as a child of God, or you will do that as an object of his wrath in the day of judgment. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, you see it there on the monitor, that God has highly exalted Jesus and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ 
is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May you do that so today that your testimony be sure and with confidence you'll stand before God. But let me ask you, those that have not yet accepted Christ, if you're here this morning and you're just not sure, you've heard the messages, you've heard the testimonies, maybe you've seen the Holy Spirit work in your life or someone that you love or know, but you still haven't trusted and accepted Christ. Let me ask you, what more proof do you need? What else do you require in your life, in your mind? to state unequivocally and with faith that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. What else do you need? The Bible says, taste and see that God is good. Would you do so this morning? If you'd like to know how you too can become a Christian, would you ask Landon, Randy, or I? We'd love to show you how you too can know Jesus Christ, how you may stand before him one day and truly confess that he is Lord. May God open your heart to the beauty and the reality of Jesus Christ. With every head bowed and every eye closed, we ask Randy to go ahead and make his way up. Is Randy today? I think so. Again, I want you to pause and consider the message. And then pray and ask the Holy Spirit, how should you respond today? Are you trusting Christ? Are you a skeptic? Are you demanding more signs and wonders? Or maybe it's in your prayer life. Maybe you're struggling with God. You're, you're struggling to be faithful. You're, you're doubting his goodness or his love. You're struggling with obeying his word because you want more evidence. You need to demand to know that, that God truly is real. I pray would you come to him today. Trust him. Randy, would you come and share with us? Pastor's prayer. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.